This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for being here. I am Emmanuel Saez, professor of uh, economics and chair of this small Moses Lectureship uh, Committee. So this year, I am delighted, along with the grad division, to uh, introduce Introduce our speaker, Waldo E. Martin Jr., who is a professor of history here at Berkeley and who will be this year's speakers in the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series. So, this lectureship series uh, in the social sciences was established in 1937. It honors the memory of Bernard Moses, professor of history and political science here at. Uh, Cal Berkeley from 1875 to 1911, and who passed uh, away in 1930. So Professor Moses uh, earned a worldwide reputation for his contributions in understanding the problems of Latin American republics, and in particular he served as a member of the U.S. Philippine Commission in the early 20th century. So let me uh, so these lectures have been going on for a very long time. We've included many celebrated colleagues, most recently Arlie Hochschild in sociology and last year Wendy Brown in political science. So let me now say a few words about our lecturer, Waldo uh, Martin. Uh, Professor Martin received his BA from Duke University and his PhD from here, University of California, Berkeley. He is a professor of history here uh, at Berkeley. Martin's research has been primarily about African-American freedom struggle movements. He's authored many books on the topic and he's currently completing a new book, A Change is Gonna Come, the cultural politics of the black freedom struggle and the making of modern America, uh, which should be published a little bit more than a year from now, early 2021. And today, uh, Waldo is going to share a lot of the uh, 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 elements that have informed his writing of, uh, of this book. So about his lecture, Professor Martin notes the seminal 20th century African-American freedom struggles include the important yet relatively unknown series of southern streetcar boycotts by African-American in the early 20th century, as well as the iconic civil rights black power insurgency. In this lecture, Professor Martin will first examine why and how these foundational struggles proved essential to the formation of the modern African-American freedom movement. Second, he will examine the centrality of the freedom movement to both the development of the modern United States and the modern world. Please join me in welcoming Professor Waldo uh, Martin. Waldo will talk for about uh, 50 minutes, then we will take questions, and then we'll have a reception just uh, behind us. Waldo, the floor is yours. Thank you.
I want to thank um, Emmanuel Says for um, that very generous uh, introduction. I also want to thank him and the committee for honoring me uh, with the opportunity to share some thoughts with you today. I also want to uh, give a shout out to Chancellor Chris, who actually uh, gave me the invitation, um, and to Ellen Gobbler, uh, without whom none of this would be possible. She actually runs the show impeccably. Um, and I want to welcome all. I see a few students. I see some friends. I see colleagues. I see university members. I see community members. I see family. And I see um, you know, people that I haven't seen in many, many years. So it's, it's very, very gratifying. Um, a word about what I want to do. Um, at this point in my career, um, I don't do a conventional lecture. I sort of try to think about um, you know, what needs to be said, how it needs to be said, and then I just go for it. I have a bunch of papers up here, but half the time I can't even see them. Um, but I do know um, how I want to proceed. Um, one of the things I'm uh, engaged in is a, a series of, uh, of writings where I'm thinking about the um, melding of autobiography and history. So some of what you will hear is sort of um, this sort of world that I'm engaged in where I'm sort of moving back and forth between uh, autobiography and history. Another um, sort of process or struggle I'm engaged in is thinking about the personal and the political and how uh, I came to do the particular scholarship I do and the ways in which my personal uh, life has informed that and continues to inform that. Um, just to be clear, I'm from a little place in North Carolina called Greensboro. North Carolina is sort of between Virginia and South Carolina. Um, the, big, the thing you really need to know about um, North Carolina I learned in graduate school. It's a valley of humility between two mountains of conceit. Uh, I taught at the University of Virginia. It is truly a different world. Um, and I know South Carolina intimately. And North Carolina is yes, Tar Heels, OK? Um, and so that's the local uh, sort of site. Then there's the whole regional reality. Um, one of the things that happened to me when I first came to graduate school at Berkeley was one of my uh, colleagues, who's now quite well known, turned to me and said, well, what was it like living behind the cotton curtain? My immediate response was, what cotton curtain? Uh, yeah, I'm just from North Carolina. Um, but I do think that uh, being a Southerner, uh, having spent the first 22 years of my life in the South, and having spent most of my life outside of the South, um, has, shapes me uh, in ways that I can't even understand sometimes. Then there's this whole issue of being uh, a U.S. historian, which um, you know, I've been at for decades, and sort of trying to think about the relationship between uh, the local, the regional, and the national. Um, to me, uh, the South is just a variation on a theme. Um, I've been all over this country <laughs> in, in a lot of the states. And everywhere I go, it's 
pretty much the same, uh, especially in terms of thinking about race and race experiences. And then there's the way in which I currently sort of struggle with how I see myself. I see myself as more of a, a global citizen. And um, I'm really fascinated by thinking about the way in which the movement, especially African-American freedom struggle, um, is far more capacious, far um, you know, sort of um, humanistic, universal, uh, and opens out onto the world in ways that we uh, really don't acknowledge and understand. Um, and so that's part of what I want to do. One stream uh, is sort of black student youth activism. That's why you have this picture up here. These are four black college students from A&T, uh, which is where, uh, located where I'm from. And in February 1st, 1960, I was eight going on nine. They sat in at a, a Woolworth lunch counter, which is about 15 minutes from the church that I attended. And so this, uh, at the time, rocked my world. I didn't quite understand it, but I go back to it constantly in terms of trying to think about who I am. If you visit Greensboro today and you go to the Chamber of Commerce, they will tell you that there is an international civil rights museum that anchors downtown, that anchors the way in which Greensboro now represents itself. I can tell you that when I left North Carolina in 1970, uh, when was it, two, I think? Um, oh, yeah, three. Um, I had no idea that one day there would be a gleaming, multi-storied, uh, multi-level uh, you know, museum honoring uh, this moment. Um, so the role of youth, the role of students in the making of freedom struggle. Um, and then there's the whole issue of freedom struggle civil rights and how we talk about what black people did and continue to do. Um, and one of the things I also want to do is to just highlight some of the moments in the struggle that very few people know about um, but are vital to thinking about and understanding the freedom struggle. One is uh, sort of the series of boycotts, streetcar boycotts in southern cities, about 20-some-odd cities, in the first part of the, of the 20th century, um, and sort of trying to force us to think about a moment that in conventional understanding failed, but lived on in, in, in memory, if not in sort of the, the kinds of ways in which the history was written. And then there's a moment in the 30s and 40s of, of black youth student activism with an organization, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, that I've done a lot of work on and have actually had the extraordinary life pleasure of coming to know some of the former students, several of whom are in there who have passed the century mark and are still fighting the good fight. And um, so thinking about the Southern Negro Youth Congress, especially in relationship to the much better known and storied uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is another thing that I uh, want to try to do. But before I get started, I have to go to my favorite poet, Langston Hughes. The Negro speaks of rivers. I must tell you, up until around uh, November 1966, I was a Negro. 
I did not become black until late 1966, so I glory and honor my Negroness. The Negro speaks of rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Now we must attend the church of Aretha, the queen of soul. Lyrics courtesy of the high priestess of soul, Nina Simone, to be young, gifted, and black. rich? I asked my mother as a group of my six-year-old friends and I came bustling through the kitchen door. I thought this because even though we lived in the projects, um, we had more stuff than most of the people around us. We lived in a place called Morningside Homes, a recent built public housing project for Negroes, and um, for the first 12 years of my life, this was my oyster. Um, none of our friends, none of, my, none of our friends' families owned a car. Some of us had TVs. We had a TV. My standard of comparison was my uh, project friends. I had more well-to-do friends, especially in church and at school, and I saw a lot of relatively well-to-do white people on TV. But I saw myself and my family and my relatives as special and those around me as relatively fortunate, in some ways rich. Stunned by this line of questioning, and my mother was consistently stunned. She called me old nosy um, for, you know, because I was in, you know, forever. Um, her explanation, I think, gets to the heart of what I'm trying to get at. She and my father, my mother was a domestic, my father worked for a local glass installation company, actually 
in her words, worked for other people, white people, helping to make them rich. We were not rich because we actually worked. The implication I heard but did not quite understand was that somehow rich white people got that way by ripping off other people, especially workers, especially black workers like my parents. She added that I should always be proud of the fact that she and my father actually earned a living, earned their way in the world, and did the work that they did. And I want to leave you with sort of just a thought um, as I've tried to puzzle through this. I think we were not materially rich, but we were spiritually and culturally rich. Several years later, when I was eight going on nine, as I said, these four black students uh, from ANT, a historically black school, um, sat in at a lunch counter. And um, what I mostly recall was there were a lot of meetings in my church. Um, things were tense. Um, I didn't quite understand exactly what was going on. Um, my father was very apolitical. My mother was deeply political, but my mother was at the opposite end of the nonviolent, um, you know, point of view. Um, as uh, she loudly proclaimed, if a white person so much as touched her, that person would draw back what she called a nub. Um, the community that I grew up in, uh, as far as I could tell, universally applauded militant, nonviolent, civil disobedience, uh, the kind of strategies and tactics that define the student-led protests. These heroic black student protesters bravely defied the Jim Crow practice that refused to serve black, cult, black customers at the lunch counter. Blacks, according to Jim Crow practice, were served at a separate space for then colored or Negro pa patrons and it was at the other end of the counter. Um, we were not allowed, we were allowed to go in Woolworth, but we were not allowed to op uh, order food. Uh, once again, my mother's um, voice is clear. For her, white folks were not clean enough to prepare her food. She knew them, she worked for them. Most of the people preparing and serving the food, of course, were black, she didn't talk about that. The arrest of these four students sparked a series of lunch counter sit-ins over the next several weeks at this particular lunch counter and other lunch counters in the city and uh, boycotts throughout the South in other sort of cities. What I want to emphasize is that this, the, the, the world that I grew up in was situated between, especially the church, between two historically black schools. There's Bennett College for Women uh, on one side, uh, a few hundred yards in that direction, and then on the other side is A&T, which was co-ed. And Bennett remains, I think there's Spellman and Bennett uh, as historically black colleges for, for women. Also, it needs to be uh, borne in mind that there were allies, white allies, uh, of, uh, and, and a lot of them were women who were then at UNCG or the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Um, I want to interest, uh, talk about this geography because when people try to understand sort of these kinds of moments, what you really try to need to understand is that these students come out of a community. One of them uh, was my high school industrial arts 
uh, teacher's son, Ezell Blair, Jr. When we sat in industrial arts, we not only did whatever we did, I was not very good at it, but we got politics. Um, he was a vigorous NAACP guy, uh, you know, whatever was happening, you know, you were you're using your whatever you used in industrial arts, but you were also getting politics. Um, the NAACP, especially the youth chapter, the Boy Scouts, the, the Baptist, whatever that thing, the Baptist youth group that I was part of, they were all the same group. Uh, you know, you, religion, politics, it all sort of flowed together. The same guy in my church basically ran it all. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting um, about this moment, and I think bears repeating, is that um, there was a black prep school on the outskirts of Greensboro, Palma Memorial Inst Institute, founded by a pioneering black educator, uh, Charlotte Hawkins Brown. And um, uh, every other Sunday or so, the kids, and they were always in their preppy outfits, these black preppy people, uh, and they came to church. And so it was the world that I grew up in, sort of this whole notion of black education, the role of black education, high achieving uh, and impressive students caught my attention. Uh, another sort of moment in, in around 1963, Brother Jesse Jackson, who was a big man at A&T, came to speak to my church. And Jesse has always been a man of words. And uh, I don't remember a word he said, but whatever, whatever he said, it was impressive. And I told my mama, boy, he's good. And then she turned to me and said, yes, he might amount to something one day. Uh, and amounting to something was very important uh, to my mother and my father. So the world of black excellence, the world of black striving, notably black educational achievement, framed my early evolving consciousness, so did the movement and the larger African-American uh, freedom struggle that uh, this sort of fit into. The Greensboro movement and the larger African-American uh, freedom struggle helped politicize the community and myself, um, and it was intensely uh, educational. Um, it not only energized, as you know, Greensboro, but it energized the South, it captured the attention of the nation and the globe. And so very early on, um, even though I didn't quite understand it until I was a few years older, this proved to be a moment uh, in my life that I continue to go back to to try to you know, puzzle through it. Um, the other thing that needs to be uh, highlighted, because I think that's the other aspect of this that I think some people don't really get, is that the freedom movement was a black thing. There were white allies, but it was black-led. And um, you, we need to understand the power of black people organizing, black people fighting, black people struggling. struggling. Um, out of those series of um, you know, boycotts of these lunch counters and all that other kind of stuff, came the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which was founded in, uh, at another historically black uh, university, Shaw in Raleigh, where uh, Ella Baker, the legendary Ella Baker, had actually gone to school, and she helped facilitate the founding of SNCC. So what you see very early on is sort of the way in which a moment that's very local 
lights a fire, and that fire spreads. It spreads nationally. It spreads globally. And I also think it's worth uh, reiterating that SNCC gave us an extraordinary array of our freedom fighters, Julian Bond, Ruby Dar Smith, Robert Moses, Dorothy Carton, uh, Stokely Carmichael, H. Ramp Brown, for starters. And African-American student youth activism in concert with white student youth activism turned this nation around. I don't need to say much more about that. Berkeley's free speech movement owed uh, an enormous debt to the civil rights movement. A lot of what the free speech movement was about was students at Berkeley demanding the right to uh, pass out leaflets about supporting sort of, um, you know, the civil rights struggles, freedom struggles in the South. Uh, Mario Savio had actually been, uh, had participated in Freedom Summer, uh, the summer before uh, he became famous as part of the free speech movement. The other sort of way in which um, this, I think, is very, very important to think about is sort of that transition from civil rights to black power. Um, there are all kinds of scholarly debates about this. Um, I wrote a book with a good friend of mine on the Black Panther Party and the transition or whatever you think about sort of how you get from civil rights to black power, we still disagree on. Uh, Josh and I still fight that. We get on the phone, even though we wrote the book. If you read in the footnotes, you'll see how we papered over some of those differences. So, I, I, But I, I don't want to get into that. But what I want to say is that um, black power has a whole history. It's more nationalist. There, there are separatist elements in it. Um, you know, you know self-determination, self-definition, they're all kind of community uh, control. There are all kinds of elements that come out of black power, and then it pushes even more left, even more radical, uh, especially with organizations like uh, the Black Panther Party and the Republic of New Africa. There are all kinds of ways it expresses itself. But what I think is important to understand is that most people on the ground experienced black power as a moment in their communities where black people mobilized and organized to do all kinds of things to open up the worlds of which they were a part. Um, for example, school desegregation, uh, and it, you know, at one point schools were more desegregated and integrated in the South than anywhere else in this country, is really uh, comes out of that struggle. Another struggle, and students were actively involved in this, was the struggle around affirmative action. Um, one of the reasons I uh, landed at Duke was that um, Duke decided that they needed more than 25 black students out of a population of about 8,000. So they scurried around the country like most white universities trying to find able Negroes. Um, and you know they would herd us into a room, well, here's the Harvard guy, here's the Yale guy. Uh, and so I landed, and Duke gave me a lot of money, so I went there. But um, I think, in all seriousness, the way to think about this in terms of the ways in which I talk about this with my students is that it's all about affirmative action. It's all about creating strategies, tactics, practices which open up uh, the system and allow uh, qualified, and I would uh, asterisk, underline, bold print, qualified, you know, People ask me, well, what was it like going to Duke? I, 
I didn't find intellectually and, 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 and in a scholarly sense, I saw no difference. Uh, they were no smarter, no more brilliant than most of the black students I knew. Uh, so it was just like going to school. People like to make much, much about it, but I never saw the huge difference. Um, and so I just went. Um, but I do think that affirmative act, I'm an affirmative action baby, as Stephen Carter would say. Without that, I don't know how I would have gone there, and I don't know how I would have gotten here. So that's one aspect of the struggle that I think we need to, to sort of think about and understand. Another aspect is sort of black power and sort of the ways in which it, it reshaped uh, black consciousness. In my own life, black student activism and black power activism was huge. Malcolm X turned me around, especially the speeches and the autobiography. As you might tell, so did Nina Simone, the poetry of Nikki Giovanni and Donnell Lee, the spoken word fire of Gil Scott Heron, and the last poets lit a fuse in my life. But so did the student activists in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I will never forget riding down to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in a little VW uh, with about 10 of my friends, and uh, we were going to hear Brother Stokely. And um, after uh, hearing Brother Stokely, I was ready to join the revolution. Uh, I came home, and I told my parents, and my mama turned to me and said, ain't you got some homework? Uh, so there was always this tension between the revolution and homework. Um, but, and so I tried to negotiate it as best I could. Um, the other thing that I would highlight is student activism uh, draw, uh, featuring students of color at places like Berkeley, San Francisco State, and Duke that opened up these institutions. Um, in my experience, uh, we spend a lot of time at Berkeley talking about free speech, and we don't spend enough time talking about ethnic studies, the third world strike, and how diversity actually came to places like Berkeley, not because Berkeley wanted it, but because students of color and their allies demanded and fought for it. And the legacy of that is still uh, with us, obviously. Um, and so I went to Duke. Black students had taken over the administration building. Uh, the spring before I got there, and when I got there, all the activism, anti-war, anti-draft, everybody involved in all of that. But a, a cause dear to my heart, uh, organizing and unionizing hospital workers, most of whom were black, deeply invested in this. Uh, founding of alternative organizations like Malcolm X Liberation University, I had a number of friends who left Duke and went to, to Malcolm X Liberation University. I was never tempted. Um, but you could see this was a very uh, yeasty period. Most recently, and I flash forward because I was really proud uh, in the 1980s and uh, early 1990s when the, the, the movement to divest companies of South Africa really uh, had an impact. And once again, students, uh, including black students, were big in this. 
At that time, I was at a place called the University of Virginia, which is very, very conservative. Um, you know, it's better now, uh, really. Um, but what I, most, what I mostly remember about the um, uh, sort of anti-apartheid stuff was, you know, it's Mr. Jefferson's university, so everything is picture perfect. And radical students created a shanty town in the middle of the lawn, which is sort of like the picturesque part of the campus in the central campus created uh, by Jefferson. People went ape. Um, but I thought it was glorious. Um, and one of my proudest moments was speaking at a protest uh, on the lawn in front of the rotunda where a whole bunch of us uh, sort of argued for divestment. So what I'm trying to get you to understand and think about is sort of the way in which the personal and the political uh, have deeply uh, influenced me and pushed me in all kinds of directions. Um, I want to go in another sort of way because I'm short on time and lots of pages. Um, one of the things that I uh, firmly believe in is that history uh, it demands that we pay attention to those who actually make it. Um, and I'm firmly convinced that African Americans are the prime movers in their liberation struggle. Um, I have a hard time sometimes with my students helping them to think about this because they think Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. They think that President Johnson gave us the Voting Rights Act, gave us the Civil Rights Act. When I tell them that, no, if that's what you learned, you're wrong. Uh, black people protesting, fighting, and dying uh, you know, gave us the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. The slaves freed themselves by running away to freedom, giving their service to the Union Army, and undermining the Confederacy. When Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he simply verified what was already on the ground. And so I think there's this way in which history is created from the bottom up and people make their own history that we really need to, to work with. And to me, that's what the freedom struggle is all about, how substantive change, real change, really comes from those who demand it and fight for it. Um, my favorite Frederick Douglass quote sort of gets at this. Um, Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them, and these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. And to me, this is what the freedom struggle is all about. Um, there is an extraordinary literature about the 20th century. There's an extraordinary literature about earlier sort of freedom movements. And I just want to say a little bit about that literature and, and, and sort of how I would weigh in on it. Um, first, there's the whole issue of that historians love that I find sort of like tired. Uh, they love to fight, when does it start? Uh, when the first African is enslaved. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, we can fight about that. But um, 
I think one of the ways to think about it is the founding of the American nation uh, is part and parcel of a freedom struggle that Africans waged, right? Uh, and they were not freed by the American Revolution, but many of them freed themselves in the context and fought uh, on the side uh, on both sides. So from the beginning, uh, they are engaged in a kind of freedom struggle, and it plays out in all kinds of complex ways. Um, I like this. There's a current book which argues that if you are trying to understand freedom, especially in an American context, it starts with the enslaved. It starts with the indigenous. It starts with the people for whom freedom has a particular kind of meaning because in a lot of ways their, their freedom is constrained. And so that's sort of the way in which I think about freedom struggle. For example, uh, thinking about uh, a current sort of buzzword, uh, birthright citizenship. There's an extraordinary uh, new book uh, which shows in extraordinary detail how this idea percolates up among black people. It's crucial. They, they see themselves as born in this country, having done a lot of the work, having earned citizenship. So whether it's codified or not, they see themselves as citizens and fight uh, for uh, what they would call a birthright citizenship. Um, another way of um, thinking about this is to understand that, for example, Afro-Americans were not only instrumental, as one historian has written, to the revolts and revolutions, including um, the Haitian Revolution, the, Mex the Re Revolution in Mexico, and the American Revolution, that brought slavery ultimately to an end. Black people and their allies defined and defended democracy before and after legal slavery was abolished. So if you're trying to understand it, you can't understand it unless you listen to the people for whom it means the most. It is precisely because enslaved as well as free black people were often denied rights that they themselves were especially invested in establishing and protecting those rights. And so when you get something like the Dred Scott decision, which declares that black people have no rights which white people are bound to respect, uh, black people and their allies are outraged and fight it uh, all over the place. Another way of thinking about freedom struggle, African-American freedom struggle in particular, and civil rights struggle, is to understand the importance of black reconstruction, to understand the importance of uh, the reconstruction amendments, uh, Eric Foner has a new book called The Second Founding, which sort of centers sort of these amendments as part of a constitutional uh, uh, sort of uh, debate uh, and that if, had, if the revolution had, had gone the way it should have gone, uh, would have had positive consequences, but as we know, it was a stillborn revolution at best. So the 13th Amendment obviously uh, abolished slavery constitutionally. The 14th uh, established citizenship, and the 15th gave black men the vote. And in each case, these became uh, fighting uh, pillars of the freedom struggle. The, the 14th Amendment is particularly important because it establishes not only the citizenship rights of free and free black people, but it talks about uh, you know, equality before the law, 
and it talks about due process. You can't be denied your citizenship rights without due process. So a lot of the ways in which the legal and constitutional framework for the civil rights movement that we know as a civil rights movement is actually laid out in sort of the 14th Amendment. And so I think, once again, you can't sort of understand that unless you think about black reconstruction, which, of course, was uh, defeated by uh, the uh, racist white counterinsurgency uh, in the South. But Du Bois said it best in black reconstruction. The slave went free, stood for a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. He had a way with words. Um, the other thing that he talked about was Reconstruction as a splendid failure. Why was it a splendid failure? Because whites expected it to fail because they saw black people as inferior and incapable. Um, it failed because whites demanded that it fail. Uh, they did from terror, violence, murder, they did everything to make it fail. But uh, black people who participated, the black men especially, were moderate, progressive, doing all kinds of interesting things. But of course, that's not the history that we got, uh, that, uh, you know, where there's a whole racist smear campaign against Reconstruction, especially black Reconstruction, that doesn't really begin to shift until the 1960s. And I'm proud to say that scholarship coming out of a place like Berkeley with Kenneth Stamp and Leon Litwack um, paved the way for a lot of that historical uh, revisionism. In the remaining time, I'd just like to say a little bit about those moments that I talked about at the beginning. Um, two historians, Augie Meyer and Elliot Rudwick, wrote a pioneering article where they unearthed sort of these series of streetcar protests in the early 20th century throughout the South. Uh, black people were outraged. I mean, they're working poor, they're poor, they're working class. Uh, they rely on public transportation. So in all of these places, these boycotts, uh, you know, petition, there were uh, you know, all kinds of militant action. Um, typically nonviolent, uh, typically civil disobedience, but often militant. Um, and then a recent scholar um, has written a whole book about this. And so what we don't get is sort of any history of this or any discussion of this in conventional narratives of civil rights history, mostly because these movements failed. Um, blacks were able to get certain kinds of concessions, but they did not topple uh, Jim Crow. This was the period of imperialism, colonialism, the white man's burden, the highest stage of white supremacy, uh, as, as uh, Rayford Logan argued, the nadir or, nadir or the low point of race relations. So it wasn't about to happen. But the fight lived on. Um, and what I'd like to, you to think about is sort of how that fight lives on. Uh, one of the things that I uh, experienced growing up was something called Negro History Week. Uh, I think it's now a month. Uh, you know, I celebrate it every day. Uh, you know, that's because I am who I am. But um, what it did for me was just, I was always, I was a student in the class who was always like, 
I don't buy this stuff about African savages. I mean, I read a little bit. This doesn't make sense to me. And my teachers would say, uh, you can just sit over there and, and, and we will ignore. You know, I was constantly in trouble with things like this. I'd read stuff and I just, this, this does not work for me because uh, I know it not to be true. And then I had a few other contrarian friends. That's why when I read Malcolm X, light bulbs went off, you know. When I read Carter G. Woodson, The Miseducation of the Negro, light bulbs went off, you know. Um, even in black schools, uh, and I went to all black schools and went out until I went to Duke, um, there, was a there was some misinformation. But what I want you to think about is how that lives on, because it lives on in memory. Uh, it lives on in something called black history the history that black people write about black people. Uh, and there's a whole tradition of that. And if you read that, and if you pay attention to local black history, these movements and these struggles, and, and black newspapers, black evidence, then you, you get all of that. And if you paid attention, and, uh, and the other thing that happens is that there's a whiteout, uh, especially um, in not only scholarship, but in the ways in which local whites who have a lot of the power uh, sort of treat a lot of these things. Um, another thing that I mentioned at the outset was sort of the Southern Negro Youth Congress. Um, one of the sort of extraordinary moments in uh, sort of this series of summer institutes that I have conducted with a good friend, Pat Sullivan, has been sort of getting to know activists uh, from the 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, I mean, a lot of the SNCC people, a lot of the Black Panther Party people, I mean, these are sort of, I mean, they're, they're, they're at least, uh, you know, I can sort of, I mean, some of them are even my age, I can sort of deal with that. But when you meet people who were fighting a, a, a comparable fight in the 30s and the 40s without any mass movement behind them, without uh, sort of the kind of mass-mediated support national and international that mobilized on behalf of the civil rights movement, then you understand that these were indeed long-distance freedom fighters. So the Southern Negro Youth Congress was this extraordinary uh, black student organization that brought together sort of uh, local groups uh, throughout the South. Uh, there are four points, uh, citizenship, education, jobs, health, they had a whole cultural program. They did little puppet shows. They'd go into little towns and rural areas uh, trying to politicize. In their last meeting before they were red-baited out of existence um, in 1947, th this is what they were. The abolition of the poll tax and all barriers to voting, the enactment of a perma permanent Fair Employment Practices Commission, the passage of a federal anti-lynching bill, equality in education through the elimination of segregation, adequate health, housing, recreational, and cultural facilities, an end to all the degrading practices of quote-unquote white supremacy, and they use the term, which violate our dignity as human beings and impede the progress of the masses of white Southerners, the defeat of universal military training and all attempts to militarize American youth and provoke a third world war. And this sort of militant progressive politics goes in all kinds of directions. Um, prison reform, um, anti-peonage struggle, anti-rape activism. Um, there's a new, relatively new book by Danielle McGuire about some of this. Um, 
And so what I want you to think about is sort of why you don't know about the Southern Negro Youth Congress. And there's an easy explanation. It's called McCarthyism. Uh, it's called, as Marge France once put it, the Great Repression, uh, and which literally blots a lot of that radicalism of uh, labor, uh, you know, all kinds of local uh, economic justice uh, activities, rent strikes, and all of that kind of stuff that's happening uh, in the 30s and, and the 40s. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to sort of make, and you know, we're, it's, it's like people act like Black Lives Matter. It's the first time young black people say, hey, Black Lives Matter builds upon that whole world, that whole tradition. And the Southern Negro Youth Congress saw themselves as building upon the activism of those who came before it. A lot of the what some people call new Negro activism, especially of the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. The final thing I want to say something about, and I do think we're getting long toward daybreak up here, uh, is an argument that I've been having with some of my students about um, well, well, why is it that black people have to sing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud? Uh, why do black people have to affirm who they are? Um, I said, clearly you've not been black. Uh, but uh, I don't say that. I would never say that. I think that. But um, the assault on black people and blackness, and sort of what white supremacy in uh, that whole world, I think it, it, it is extraordinary, not only in terms of how it influences uh, sort of black people, but sort of black responses. One of the things that I think is really misunderstood is uh, love. For me, and this is the world I grew up in, you have to love yourself. If you can't love yourself and don't love yourself, then you can't, you can't engage in a freedom struggle. You have to have self-love. You have to have a sense of collective self-worth. And you have to be affirmed in the world in which you move in. And so it just made sense to me. Uh, but what I also think is misunderstood is that it's not all about black people. Say it loud, I'm brown and I'm proud. Say it loud, I'm yellow and I'm proud. Say it loud, I'm red and I'm proud. Say it loud, I'm disabled and I'm proud. Say it loud, I'm a woman and I'm proud. To me, that's the message, right? You find yourself where you are. You figure out how things can get, uh, get better, and then that's where your struggle is. Uh, as Robert Moses uh, uh, once uh, sort of said off the top of his head, uh, our lot is struggle. If you understand your lot to be struggle, then you, know, you can't become cynical, you know, and you can't turn your back on sort of what brought you to this point and if we're ever going to get better, what's going to make us better? So this whole turn in the 20th century, and there are all kinds of antecedents, in the 19th century toward a global, international vision of black emancipation, 
um, is huge. Uh, it's not just about black freedom in the context of the United States. It's about Haiti. It's about wherever African-descended peoples are outside of Africa. It's about the African continent. It's about Pan-Africanism. And once you really get going, you understand that it's about stuff like colored cosmopolitanism, uh, sort of this whole idea that Du Bois and a bunch of intellectuals sort of, you know, the, the, the global solidarity among people of color engaged in a struggle against imperialism, colonialism, and racism. How do you forge that kind of struggle? How do you forge those kinds of bonds? Um, Nico Slate has a really good book about colored cosmopolitanism, and it's really about South Asian Indians. Gandhi, obviously, looms huge, but then there are a whole bunch of other individuals who interact with and have connections with sort of African-American freedom fighters, and then there are a whole bunch of African-American freedom fighters who engage with and struggle around all kinds of issues um, with Indians. And so it's a, it's a fabulous book. Um, another book that sort of opens this out is a book which talks about the synergy between black freedom struggle, especially before Fidel Castro, uh, in uh, Cuba and how before uh, the revolution, uh, black freedom struggle in Cuba was all over the place. It had all kinds of institutions. The problem is that once you get to revolution, then these identifiably black institutions are in, in the name of the revolution. They must go. But those before the revolution, those uh, institutions were the site of an important kind of cultural struggle among Afro-Cubans. And those kinds of struggles that they waged oftentimes met with and in and, and, and interaction with people, Booker T. Washington, Marcus Garvey, uh, you know, Mary McLeod Bethune. I mean, there are all these sorts of, you know, not necessarily quote unquote uh, uh, left radical <laughs> revolutionary types. And, uh, and what's really ironic and interesting in a lot of ways is that then Cuba as sort of the epitome of the revolution narrows sort of this politics and then uh, so that uh, sort of a more moderate sort of wing of the black freedom struggle is not exactly included. So there's all kinds of interesting work um, which points out that there's a whole black internationalism, there's a whole black globalism and you can uh, trace this um, and plot this out throughout the 20th century. Um, thinking about third worldism, which is fraught and complicated, thinking about uh, all kinds of ways in which these ideas work themselves out. But I think one of my most recent discoveries, and I was totally fascinated by this, is a book about black nationalist women um, in the 30s and 40s by Keisha Blaine. And what Keisha shows is that under the radar screen, there are a whole series of working poor black women, a lot of them coming out of Garveyism, a lot of them coming out of alternative black religions, and a lot of them who see possibilities in aligning themselves with, uh, you know, especially the Japanese who are seen as sort of the huge in sort of representing sort of the colored races. And so there's all this interesting kind of politics. And um, we don't know about this because, uh, number one, the FBI wasn't on their trail. 
Um, they couldn't quite figure it out. And when they got on the trail, they decimated them. But uh, it's, it's a totally interesting look at how a group of black women that we know nothing about uh, sort of created organizations like uh, the movement uh, support for Liberian immigration. It's in, um, in the early 30s, 400,000 black men and women signed on to a petition expressing a desire to immigrate from the United States to West Africa. The petition was uh, you know, given to FDR, and you know, obviously nothing happened. And it's complicated. Um, <laughs> these women also sort of like joined the efforts of uh, arch racists like Theodore Bilbo, who offered a bill to get money for, for black people to return to Africa. Their idea was, white man, get us the money, we'll leave. I don't care who you are. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, a lot of black leaders uh, sort of said, this, this will not work. So what I've tried to do is just to give you sort of different ways of thinking about black freedom struggle, uh, sort of thinking about sort of my own struggle, personal and political, um, how all these things hopefully fit together. But if I have a conclusion, and my students always demand this, they always say, well, what, well, what should I put down? Uh, put this down. Um, African Americans have typically globalized their own freedom struggle. And in that globalizing move, they have intimately identified their freedom struggle with the freedom struggle freedom struggles of Africans on the continent of Africa and African-descendant peoples um, around the globe. In addition, in an often related move, African-Americans have globalized their freedom struggle by intimately linking it with the freedom struggles of peoples of color around the globe. Finally, African-Americans have globalized their freedom struggle by linking it with the freedom struggle of oppressed Europeans, like Irish Americans. Um, in that spirit, in the spirit of the global struggle, and in particular, the global struggle against white supremacy, I must return to the music. And I must go out with one of my theme songs, uh, one of the vital liberation anthems of the 20th century. Hit it, brother. Until the philosophy which owed one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned. Everywhere is war. 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 Thank you. Hi, thanks for your talk. It was very provocative. And one thing that made my head snap up <clears throat> very sharply was when you talked about this, this paper by the two academics about the streetcar protests. Right. So recently, just probably in the last week, I connected three dots. I'm a New Yorker, 
And uh, so the subway is second nature to me. And I was looking at some footage of, you know, you could call them protests or uprisings in the New York City subways over the fare increase. Dot number two, what's going on here in BART with eating and people, you know, sneaking on BART. A lot of it's economic. The third dot, interestingly, a riot in Chile over increases in transit costs. You know, I I think there's a lot to be said for looking at dots and being in the middle of something and starting to connect it with something deeper. And for me, you know, I just would like to, I didn't get the names of those two um, writers. We can talk. But but definitely, you see where I'm coming from um, around public transportation and what's happening with folks. I th- my, my personal feeling is it goes a lot deeper than people just jumping turnstiles. Mm. People cannot afford to even get to work or school, a lot of people, and they're going to get there however they can. So I think we have to pull back and look at the broader context. So sometimes the disparate markings have a really powerful trail. I wonder what your thoughts are. I'm all for economic justice. I'm all for the redistribution of wealth. I'm all for sort of um, having um, a world, in a socialist world, in which uh, most people, everyone has everything that they need. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of my politics, and those are the kinds of things I, I struggle with. Um, but economic justice, uh, economic inequality, we have somebody here who knows much more about this than I do, Professor Says. Um, and so what I'd, what I'd like to point to is that this has been an enduring element of African-American freedom struggles. Black people have always been fighting for economic justice. Um, the, fail, the fundamental failure of Reconstruction was economic. There was no real economic... Uh, you know, reconstruction that would have given black people land, that would have given them a kind of way to protect their land and to have a certain kind of economic investment. There's an, a growing body of literature which talks about how uh, racist public policies all over the place in housing and banking and the like uh, negatively and disparately impact people of color, especially black and brown people. So, you know, to me, what you're signaling is something that I felt strongly about. One of the things I liked about Occupy was, you know, boy, are we going to have economic justice, you know? But somehow a lot of the people I know in Occupy went and sort of went off into other kinds of struggles. But the struggle for economic justice, the, the struggle around equality to me is huge. And I've said this before, and some people in here have heard this. One of the most disturbing things I, um, uh, I encounter is uh, a lot of my students are really comfortable with inequality because their idea is that they're on the right side. And so if you came up the rough side of the mountain like I did, then you, I think, necessarily have a connection with poor, dispossessed, working-class people. And my mama said, you actually work for your money? Uh, and so um, I'm all about that. And I, I mean, but, but what I would argue is that, as my wife and my daughters tell me, you don't run anything but your mouth. 
Uh, you know, so, you know, it's like uh, I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a politician. Um, I mean, I can give you all kinds of arguments. I can give you all kinds of history of radical black uh, economic thinkers who had all kinds of ideas about what we could and should do. But um, my basic thing is I, I think we have to start locally. We have to fight wherever we can fight, do whatever we can do in a personal kind of way to make things better for everybody. And, but that's another thing about the black freedom struggle that I think people don't really get. It's not just about black people. Black people open a door and then a whole bunch of people rush in. Uh, and that's been the story of freedom struggle, you know what I mean? They see, them, they see themselves in that way, and that's the way their struggle has proceeded. Uh, but yeah, talk to this guy. He knows about economic inequality. Uh, no, I'm just messing with you, but I know you do. Uh, anybody else want to? Yes. Uh, speaking about the freedom struggle and the images that mainstream Hollywood or mainstream television, including PBS, puts out about black people, I haven't seen it yet, but there's a lot of discussion on YouTube by black people about the film Harriet, uh, which purports to show black history, but where I understand there's another white savior who, I guess, saves Harriet, and, of course, an evil black man who's trying to kill her. And both of those characters, as I understand it, are completely fictitious. Um, a lot of these films... Uh, you know, that Hollywood, even PBS documentaries put out are very seductive. But I never look at these things at face value. I always look at them critically. So when I saw the color purple, I thought the stereotypes of black men were Hitlerian. And Barbara Christian said that she was horrified, the late Barbara Christian, said she was horrified when she saw it. When I saw Precious, I saw stereotypes on steroids. When I saw Byron Hurt's documentary, and, and all these films are, you know, are being fronted by black directors. It's the latest trend since The Color Purple. When I saw Byron Hurt's documentary, Hip Hop, Beyond Beats and Rhymes, and I wrote about this, you know, I saw, again, the stereotyping of black males as virulently misogynist, misogynist and virulently homophobic. Um, black Panther, a very seductive film. I saw over two fun-filled hours, I say this sarcastically, of black people killing black people, or the good Negroes versus the mindless black militants. And black people can be violent with each other, but the message is don't be violent against your oppressor. Well, well brother, let me put it to you this way. Um, I, don't, I, I think what you're uncovering is sort of a way in which a mass media that is not controlled by black people, really about black people or for black people, and you know, you know, does what they do, uh, and it's not always clear to me that putting black people in positions of power, as you suggest, is the solution. I think the solution is a political revolution where um, we understand the uh, sort of pernicious impact of this, and then we seek to uh, uproot it. But my sense of all this is that you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of stuff, uh, you know. Awful. If I may, I think a lot of people who would supposedly in the choir are beguiled by this. And the last thing I want to say, I wrote about it called Right Hook at the Bell, where Bell Hooks, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, I lose track of time in the Bay Area, came out and said that 
black men were virulently misogynist and vir- virulently homophobic. Again, I wrote about it on, in an article at Black Commentary called Right Hook at the Bell. My last name is Anderson. But all these things are so seductive that, you know, we're taught to celebrate this. And Oprah Winfrey and whoever gives out hundreds of tickets so black school kids can see these movies. Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. Bell isn't here to, uh, sort of, and, 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 you know, so, and, and neither is Alice Walker. So, and it would be useful, I think, uh, you know, to, to have some of these people here to talk about how they think about some of this stuff. Um, my only uh, argument is that I think uh, we, we just need a more diverse industry with more uh, diverse kinds of power shaping images. And hopefully that will Im- improve what we get. But I, I, I don't have a lot of hope for Hollywood. To me, it's all about, as far as I can tell, money. Uh, and so, you know. Yes, stereotyping black people, yeah. Um, I'm wondering what you think about the current call for reparations and how you would recommend going about doing reparations. Okay, let me be very honest. There's, um, whew, whew. Uh, this is a huge question. It's been around for a long time. I think people like Ta-Nehisi and others have given it a lot of currency. Um, Personally, um, I think uh, black people and the uh, descendants uh, or the descendants of the enslaved uh, are owed something. And I think that payment should be some kind of material payment, not just a, I'm sorry I enslaved you. Uh, you know, an apology. Uh, you, you can take that. Uh, so, you know, that's my personal belief. But as I, as I said, I don't run anything. Um, but I think the moral and economic and philosophical arguments on behalf of some kind of well-thought-out reparations, it makes sense to me. I've, I've read all kinds of things about this. And so uh, I'm more pro. And then some of it, it gets sort of silly. But, you know, I, I think... There are enough brilliant people uh, who, who, are, who are behind this. They could, they could figure it out. But do I think it'll happen? Uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. So if, if, if people aren't in the streets fighting for it and demanding it, it's not going to happen uh, because, quote, unquote, the president or somebody wants it. Uh, no. It's going to happen when black people and their allies uh, uh, demand it. And um, you know, say, for example, uh, I had this in the talk. I didn't use it, but like a lot of things. Um, the Fair Employment Practices Commission does not come about because FDR all of a sudden thinks that uh, a non-discrimination uh, edict uh, is a good thing. It comes out because A. Philip Randolph and a whole bunch of black people said, if you don't do something, we're going to march on Washington. And, uh, and the idea and this is in oh, 1941 or whenever, uh, all them black people coming over, oh, let me see what I can do. Uh, you know, that's the way things happen. So I, I think if you want reparations, you're going to have to fight for them. I, I can't imagine it happening any other way. Uh, hi, Professor. I'm Brother Rashid. Hey. Um, if you take his class, you get to hear that music when you, uh, you come into the room. So that's oh, yeah, awesome. Um, I have two questions. First, I was having sort of a debate with someone recently, and their position 
I, w- I was saying that it was really necessary to uh, study and understand enslavement in this country and throughout the Americas. And their sort of position was, why is it always focused on slavery? Everything, you know, 12 years of slave to help, et cetera. And so I was interested in, um, first, your opinion on how much of slavery should be studied um, by folks. And are there um, some other topics that we should also study? And then that, that was kind of one question. And so then can we take that one? Because I have a very quick answer to that. Yeah, one. sure. Uh, slavery lasted longer than emancipation, okay? How many, what, black people have been emancipated roughly since 1863 or something? Yeah, not even 200 uh, They years. were enslaved for hundreds of years, okay? So it seems to me that you can't ignore those hundreds of years of enslavement. Okay, right. so what's the second part? The second question is, are there some areas that haven't been researched that um, you think, folks, we need to know more about? Uh, I t- and what are those? Okay. From my point of view, the kinds of work that I think needs to be done is uh, sort of local grassroots activism that shapes the lives of ordinary folks at the local level. Um, We have a lot of these macro-large studies with elites, with middle class, and with sort of organizations that are huge and influential. But... I come from a place where all you have to do is talk to a few people and you will get a sense of a rich history of struggle that is not contained uh, in any kind of conventional work. And so I like the idea of working locally. And what you often find is that once you begin to think locally and look at a lot of those archives, they open outward. They see themselves as connected to uh, you know, other uh, regional uh, struggles. Uh, you know, this, this Keisha Blaine book is totally fascinating. I mean, it's sister creates this organization at the back of her restaurant, and then next thing you know, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, you know, black people signing a petition wanting to go back to, wanting to go back to Li- saying they want to go back to Liberia. I don't know if they really wanted to go back. But, you know, it seems to me that there, there is grassroots, local activism that needs to be excavated. And uh, I I find the kind of work that a lot of young scholars especially are doing uh, in in that area totally, totally fascinating. So so I was was sort of in the middle of this as a a kid, you know, as a 13-year-old. Um, but when speaking of, of Wilkerson's book and the Great Migration, can you connect the the trends and the and the and the upwelling that you talk about from the South, um, with the impact of so many people from the from the African American community moving to Richmond and Oakland and Detroit and New York, and how did how did those pieces you know how did that play off how did those things play off each other? Once again, uh, this is several books. Um, the, the Great Migration, the first phase of the Great Migration around World War I, the second phase around World War II. The first phase is basically northern and midwestern. The second phase is that's when you get sort of black people moving uh, fundamentally to the west. It transforms the nation. It, it has huge implications. Just think about housing. Um, and um, jobs, uh, the creation of uh, sort of segregated 
residential areas and all of these places that you speak about, and 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 um, redlining uh, banks, uh, you know, lending practices for housing. There are all kinds of ways in which the kinds of practices that people tend to associate with the South are basically uh, national. I think, I get, what is Richard's book, The Color of Law? Um, you know, where, you know, the, institu the institutional framework of the New Deal, for example, um, does not, uh, you, you can't, uh, agricultural workers and domestics aren't included under Social Security. Why? Because that's what most black people do. Um, and the people who created it consciously created a bill that would exclude most black working poor and working class black people, but necessarily exclude a lot of white working class and poor people as well. So it seems to me, and, and there's a whole, I think Ira Katz Nelson's When Affirmative Action Was White, about how the New Deal basically creates and uplifts uh, whites into a middle class and in a lot of ways has a whole series of policies which undermine uh, sort of the creation of a black middle class. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on this, uh, but you know, the way, and I have a student working on some of this. I think one of the things that people need to understand is that's why you get what? That's why you get the Black Panther Party. Uh, you know, it, it, these things are not mysteries, you know. <laughs> uh, you, you know what I mean? Uh, the conditions demand a response and the people on the ground give a response. Um, but you know, I, the other thing about this is the flip side. Um, a lot of people move out and a lot of people stay. And so the struggle is complicated. The people who stay constitute what comes to be the preeminent southern wing of the movement. And then you have sort of a northern movement. You have a, I mean, there's a civil rights movement wherever there are you know, struggling black people and people of color. There are all kinds of movements. So it seems to me that in addition to talking about sort of the impact of the Great Migration on sort of these, these receiving areas, the Great Migration also has an impact on the sending areas as well. And I think there's much more synergy and interaction between Places that where, where black people migrate from, um, and you know, it's not like they reject at homecoming, going home. You know, when when people die, uh, do, where, where they want to be buried with their people, in the South. You know, these are my. Be so I mean, I think there's a, a complicated relationship, and there's you know, since the 80s, as uh, 70s, a well-documented black return. You know. Uh, it's like uh, Gladys Knight, you know, uh, midnight train to Georgia. You know, he got tired of L.A. L.A. proved too much for the man. Man got to move back to Georgia, you know. And now Atlanta is L.A., lovely Atlanta. Uh, you know, Blackwell, you know, Tyler Perry and all, you know, brother man uh, back there. Uh, it, it is a central sort of force, you know, black people moving there every day looking for an advantage. So, you know, there's, there's this back and forth movement, which I also find fascinating. But the world out here, the whole, you know,
black world out here is fundamentally a creation of, of what happens during World War II in a lot of ways. And, and you know, all these, you know, it's just amazing when you go up and down uh, rich, you go out to these waterfronts where they used to build those ships and all that other kind of stuff, and the way the, the nation mobilized, and then after the war they demobilized, and then where, where did the jobs go, where did the people go, what happened to Rosie the Riveter? You know, there, there are all kinds of uh, in, influences that come out of that. But no, I, I think migration is, is one of the central shaping factors in sort of our experience as a nation, you know, Im migration, immigration. Um, the other thing that I, I, I would emphasize is that most of this is willing. You know, people are doing this of their own accord. Uh, slavery was, 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 was unwilling, you know. And sometimes people don't quite get that, you know. Uh, you know they just came like, a, nah. Uh, so, um, I don't know. Is there, is there anything else? Okay, so right here, sister, and you're going to take us home. <laughs> yeah, this will be the next question. Yeah. So I, um, I hear a lot of fellow white people say, um, but I have a black friend, or, and I, I have, or I have black friends. Not, it's either but or and I have a black friend. Um, and I know a lot of people, that's enough for white people, but I don't a black friend or a couple, even a couple, but I don't a couple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't feel that's, okay. That's not enough. No, um, by any stretch of the imagination, um, and for people, for white people that don't really know how to best use. Uh, their white power or their white wealth or what have you. What, what would you like to see what more white people doing? And please be harsh. Oh, no, I, no, let me be honest. This, this comes out of the movement struggle. Um, I think, it, to me, racism is a white problem. White supremacy is a white problem. It will be resolved when white people decide, we've got to get rid of this. Uh, people of color didn't create it. People of color don't maintain it. And so the people who created it and maintained it must destroy it. We can battle it, but without allies on the front lines, then it's you know, not going to go. So, I mean, but, I mean, people have been arguing this for a long time. Uh, Frederick Douglass has a series of really powerful sort of speeches you know, about the race problem is not the Negro problem. It's a white problem, yeah. uh, and it's gone. You know, and so and so. I think you know, I, I think you know. It, there, there was a move, especially in the '60s, where um, yeah, especially you saw this within organizations uh, like SNCC. There are these debates about the role of white people in black-led organizations, and should white people instead of sort of like uh, you know doing this kind of work, uh, do anti-racist work, you know. Uh, and, you know, there, a lot of people, maybe some whites felt they were pushed out of organizations like SNCC, um, especially with a black power, black nationalist turn. Um, but it, it seems to me that uh, I find it very hard to give it advice. Uh, but but I, I think that those who have privilege should use their privilege 
not only to sort of sustain themselves, but to the benefit of those who are less fortunate. I mean, I, I was raised a Christian, you know, I sort of have a sort so overlay of that. Uh, and so, you know, a certain kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then sort of moral, economic, justice. As I said, the thing, one of the things that really I struggle with is students who are totally comfortable with inequality because they figure that's just the nature of the game. Communism is gone. Socialism is, you know, can't happen. So we just have to get with this game. I'm going to be the next Bill Gates, be damned, everything else. That's simply not going to happen, but, you know, a lot of them uh, sort of have some variation on this this dream. So, you know, I, I just think people have to uh, go back, struggle where you are with the people that, that, that you know, and then build out from that. I was constantly throughout my life struggling with my mother who had all kinds of ideas about things, you know, and, and she was always, you know, just pushing me out of the room. I don't want to hear all that. <laughs> you, you live in Berkeley. <laughs> you know, and, but my thing is you have to struggle with the people you love. If you can't help them, then who are you going to help? And then you have to move out from there, you know? Uh, but, you know, I, I think these are conversations and struggles that, that, that people must have uh, in their own sort of, you know. You know I, it's like, you know, uh, let, me let, you, let, me, let me go with this. Okay, you can imagine this. Okay, uh, I go to Duke, and in a lot of my classes, I'm the only chocolate drop, okay? And so you're sitting up in there, and then you're reading a book, and then the professor will, you know, something about black people will come up. And then the professor, Waldo. Uh, and I think, oh, am I to speak for black people now? Uh, you know, as one of my friends said, that's too heavy a burden. Uh, but being who I was, I often took up the case and said, right on. Uh, and an example of this. Uh, we read something, and the, the, the author was arguing that black people uh, saw Nat Turner as a hero. You know, he executed, what, 50-something white people in the bloodiest slave insurrection in U.S. history. And so a lot of people have problems with it because a lot of white people got killed. Um, and so I always celebrate Nat Turner. My idea is the brother had to do it. The Lord told him to do it, number one, if you pay attention to what he had to say. But um, my, my basic thought was, oh, and, and a black person had said this. So the professor is black, students is black, and then he's asking me, well, can you confirm what this black person said? I say, hell yeah. We all thought, I didn't know that. You know, but, you know, was I supposed to sit up in there and, and sort of disagree with, with, I forget, Vincent Harding or somebody, someone, my, and I came to adore people like Vincent, um, you know, who are making all these judgments and statements about black radicalism. You know, man, my, my basic thing is that uh, you, you have to struggle from your, as my uh, scholarly friends would say, your own subject position, you know, with who you are, what you bring. And that's all you can do. I, I, don't, I don't expect you know, people to do any heroic kind of work unless you know, you're into that kind of thing. Racism is also a problem with advanced degree white liberals who think they know everything. Well, okay, my brother. Okay, well, I, I, I think I, I want to say um, 
what you need to understand is that this is a performance opportunity. And as Sly and the Family Stone would say, thank you for letting me be myself again. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.